All right, well, it's, it's so good to be back in our study, uh, 1 Corinthians again. Uh, of course, we have chapter 2, uh, or part 2, rather, of chapter 5 to finish up here tonight, if you were with us last time. So go ahead and take your Bibles and uh, make your way back to this, 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 this chapter that, as we said last time, really surfaces for us. Um, not, not an easy topic to cover, that of church discipline. Church discipline. You know, uh, this is why, in one sense, I love preaching verse-by-verse consecutive exposition because it's not often that uh, pastors and preachers get up and just say, man, I I really just want to preach on church discipline tonight. (laughs) So, um, you know, of course, as we work our way through the text of Scripture, we're forced, in one sense, to deal with whatever passage is before us. And so we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that is the topic that we're going to continue to discuss and think about. And just think about this, just again, just as Christians, look, don't, don't, don't imagine that you can come on a Friday night and hear only what you think would be applicable to your life, right? You might say, well, I don't need to know all that much about church discipline. Well, Actually, this passage in the scriptures would, would, would tell you that you're, you're very wrong in that. And you, you add to that, right, 2 Timothy 3, um, uh, the, the, the fact that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us, that includes this. And so um, we, just, we just have to say that uh, in case you you're tempted to maybe tune out on this topic or, or now some things no doubt are, are harder maybe to connect as to how, how do I, how does this relate to me? What does this mean? And how, why does this matter for me as a Christian? I would say church discipline is it's, it's not as hard as you might imagine. All right. Be, partly because what we what we said last time, church discipline really is all we're talking about is it's not we aren't even essentially speaking of a formal process and public announcements and things only leaders have to deal with, right? Anytime we come to speak about church discipline, we're speaking of just simply the process or that command that Jesus gives to us to deal with sin among Christians. That's really all we're talking about. And so if you're a Christian and you're among other Christians and you sin or others sin, that, then this applies to you. So how relevant is that? Um, so we started this chapter last time, last week, with just a few verses to cover um, uh, that remain uh, and we, we said last time that it's important, again, for us to, to study this topic because God does care about sin in the congregation. And, of course, specifically in context, um, the topic comes up here in our letter because apparently in, in the church there at Corinth, we found out last time, there, there was an incident, there was a situation in which the church 
failed in their responsibility as the body of Christ to deal with a sinning member in their midst. And so Paul is writing this section to them about that. He first calls them to practice this um, teaching, this church discipline, and then he will, as we'll see here tonight, clarify for them something that they misunderstood apparently about that practice. So just to ease back into it, let me, let me just read the entire chapter just to kind of jog our memory a bit. It will do a bit of a review to get a running start into the rest of these verses. So 1 Corinthians 5, we'll just read the whole chapter. So Paul says, it, it is actually reported there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that specifically someone has his father's wife. Remember we talked about how even that was a heinous sin, even in the eyes of the culture in that day. Verse 2, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. That was the problem, right? For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as in fact you are unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I wrote to you, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral, immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or, and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And in summary, he then says this, for what have I do to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Can somebody close that door, by the way? Were you just telling me? Yeah. It's a recording of the song we just sang. They, sing, they sound a lot better than we do. So. But, uh, than I do. They sound a lot better than I do. All right, so if you remember last week, I, I said that here's, here's how we're going to, we plan to walk through this chapter. We were going to answer four foundational questions about church discipline from this passage. Um, anybody remember what they were, those questions? I mean, really, they're four, four, four words. Uh, when? when is the first one, verse one. How is the second? Yep. Why? 
and then and who. Yeah, when do we do church discipline? Remember, uh, verse 1, we'll look at that. I'll review that here in a moment. How do we do church discipline? We looked at verses 2 through 4. Why do we do church discipline? I think we ended kind of in the middle of that one, verses 5 through 8. And then who do we do church discipline for in verses 9 through 13? So we're going to pick it up, but I, I, we, we made it um, if you're through two and a half-ish questions. So um, in case you weren't here, I'll do, let me do a quick review of the ground we've covered already, and then we'll finish the rest of this tonight. But notice first, remember we looked at from verse 1, we, tried, we answered the question, when do we do church discipline? In other words, when is church discipline necessary? And, and we, we pulled out uh, some things here in verse 1. First, we do church discipline when sin becomes known and obvious in the body of Christ, right? It is actually reported, Paul says here. You know, and that language indicates that it was well known, it was widely known, it was obvious to everyone that there was this sin. And it wasn't just sin of some unbeliever who just happened to walk in. And, but second, we, we noted that we do church discipline when that sin is in the church, right? He says, among you. It's, that, that's where it was. That this was the sin being committed by a professing believer who is identifying with the body of Christ there. And third, we noted that we do church discipline when that particular sin is ongoing and unrepentant, you remember? The language here that Paul used was that someone has present tense, his father's wife. We talked about what that was, probably. But the point being, it was in the present tense. It was ongoing. It was, so it was known, obvious, it was in their midst, and it was ongoing and unrepentant. And then last week, Lastly, we, we talked about how typically the sins that run the gamut of all four steps, as we'll see next time, it's those, they're the types of sins that usually tarnish the reputation of Christ. Or Paul says here, of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So it was serious. So it was serious, it was unrepentant, it was obvious and known, it was in their midst. And so we summarized it this way. Um, church discipline is necessary when unrepentant sin inside the church becomes known and obvious to all and is tarnishing the reputation of Christ. Now that's what we see here. That was the situation there in Corinth. And so Paul calls them to be obedient to Christ's command. Uh, but the second question we sought to answer uh, was how? How do we do church discipline? And just to review that real quick, you remember this, this we weren't so much here answering um, how in terms of, hey, step one, step two, step three, uh, that we'll look at again next time. Um, but rather, what Paul gives us here is answering how in terms of uh, with what kind of attitude, with what kind of action, 
with what kind of authority do we practice church discipline? That's what we mean by this how. In other words, this particular how in this passage is, is, is seeking to answer more about the, the quality of that obedience than it was, um, or of that process, than it was the instrumentality of it. Paul speaks here more about the manner by which we're to exercise church discipline than the method of church discipline. And so we noted first under this section to answer this question, how that church discipline is to be carried out, you remember, with an attitude of humility and grief. We learned this negatively in verse 2, notice, from what Paul says that the Corinthians did wrong and actually failed to do. Look at verse 2. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead. And so Paul is chiding them for not handling sin in their midst the right way. Instead, the implication is then if how should you handle sin in your midst? If, if not with pride and sort of carelessness, then rather with humility and, and grief. And we kind of p- pointed out to you last time that it is so interesting, isn't it? That Paul calls a tolerance of sin in their midst, a failure to practice church discipline, he calls that pride, pride and arrogance, where in our culture today, that's probably the exact opposite, right? Anytime you do exercise church discipline, the accusation, even from some in the church, is, man, you're so proud. You're so condescending. Get off your high horse. Paul actually says, no, actually, it's the exact opposite. To not deal with sin and to not grieve over it in your midst is is actually pride itself. Because pride will make us callous and casual towards that which dishonors God, while humility always responds with a proper grief over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, right? For theirs is the kingdom. So how is church discipline to be carried out with an attitude of humility and grief, which then leads to action? Secondly, the second half of verse 2, notice, remember, we also saw that we considered then not just what kind of attitude, but what kind of action that must be taken when church discipline is practiced. And, and, And first, we noticed that the sinner is to be kicked out. Plain and simple. Excommunicated is sometimes what we disfellowshipped, put out of the church. Notice verse 2. So that as a result of the proper humility and grief, it leads to this kind of action. The one who done this deed would be removed from your midst. That is to say they're no longer to be treated or seen, or identified as part of the covenant community of Christians. This is essentially, then, the kind of action that is to be performed when we're talking about church discipline at the end of the day. And we also noted here 
in sort of talking about what kind of action this is, we noted from verses 3 and verse 5, just look at it again, that Paul describes this kind of action as a kind of judgment and delivering over to Satan. You know, that's just such strong language, isn't it? He says, for I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Skip down to verse 5. To deliver such a one to Satan. That's the kind of action. That's what Paul thinks and thought of removing someone from the church. Removing someone out of the grace gift that is body life, Paul considered that kind of action as a kind of judgment, a kind of judgment that hands someone over to the influence of Satan. You know, you think it's one of the most serious of earthly judgments, isn't it? To be removed from the fellowship of God's people and given over to your sin. Do you, do you see it that way? Guys, do you see removal from the body of Christ as that? You should. It's amazing that some Christians even choose that. Paul considers that here as the worst kind of judgment in this life. Um, you know, to live as a lone wolf Christian is, is a kind of judgment, actually. It, it, Paul says it, it puts you at the mercy of satanic schemes. Um, So how is church discipline to be practiced? We looked at the attitude. We looked at the kind of action. And then lastly, here in verse 4, specifically, you remember, we highlighted the kind of authority with which the church is to exercise this practice. And he, he says, he put it this way, in the name of our Lord Jesus... When you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So not only was this an apostolic authority with Paul's own stamp of approval, right? I with you in spirit, which all that means. More significantly, we said last time that church discipline, if you notice here in verse 4, is practiced in accord with God's will and with God's authority, right? That's... It's really what he means here when he speaks of doing it in the name of Christ and with the power of Christ. Listen, church discipline is not an option. It is God's will. When it's carried out biblically, it has his authorized stamp of approval on that decision about that sinner. Look, that's sobering. You don't ever want to find yourself in that spot. So when the church gathers corporately, that's what he means when he says here, when you are assembled, to, to practice this in agreement with the Scriptures and the teaching of the apostles, that process, beloved, is is approved by heaven. It's pretty incredible. And you can't get 
any more authoritative on this earth than that right there. So to summarize the answer here then to our second question, how do we practice church discipline? We, saw, we learned here that, the church, that church discipline is to be performed by corporate excommunication with an attitude of humility and grief and on the basis of Christ's authority. That's the summary for the answer to this particular question. I'll say it again if you're trying to write it down. Uh, Church discipline is to be performed three ways by corporate excommunication with an attitude of humility and grief and on the basis of Christ's authority. That's kind of what we saw out of this. Now, we got to the third question last time. We began to answer it, and we got to finish this in the fourth tonight. So the third question we sought to answer from verses 5 through 8 was why, right? And this is so important. Why do we do church discipline? You might think, man, and this is, it's probably the best question, right? And it's probably the most pressing one. It's probably the one that is stuck in your mind most because, because it, this is not an easy thing to do, right? You know, anytime God asks us to do something that, is, that, that we, we find uh, a bit offensive or hard, I love that He always gives us reasons. And so... That's what we have here. Um, These are essentially biblical reasons for the challenging and unpopular practice of church discipline. We noted last time that there were two of them explicitly in the passage here. Two reasons for the practice of church discipline. The first was to rescue the sinner. And and the second is to keep the church pure. To rescue the sinner and to keep the church pure. And and we were only able to cover the first one from verse 5. If you remember, just look down where Paul says, Look, I've, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Here's the first purpose and reason, rather. For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. There it is explicitly. That is the first reason why we do this. It's, listen, it's not out of um, hatred for this person, it's not out of disdain, it's not to step on him while he's down. It is for His good. It is out of love for His soul. We want to see this person saved. We want to see this person restored. And so we argued last time from this that when Paul says he's delivered such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that he's not Really, he's not so much referring to punishment of this man's physical body. I don't take it that way, but rather I take it as he's referring to the doing away of the sinful principle of the flesh in this person so that, notice the rest of the verse, 
his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, both of these purposes, we argued, are redemptive in nature, not punitive. The purpose of this discipline and handing over to Satan is so that someday this person might wake up from their dangerous condition and repent. So the first reason for church discipline is to rescue the sinner. And that's where we left off. And so let's pick it up here with the second reason tonight, which is one that I'm I told you last time I was most excited about because I learned the most in my study on this one. And that's sometimes, it's most, most of the time, that's, that's where I get most excited, where I learn the most. And that is this, this purpose, to keep the church pure. Notice this purpose. It's found in verses 6 through 8, where Paul he, he, he now begins to pick up and use an illustration along with some Old Testament allusions that need to be explained a bit because they're probably, they're not familiar to us. So notice first the principle he lays down here in verse 6. He teaches us with a baking illustration. Okay, how many, how many of you bake? Men, don't be, don't be shy. You know, the extent of my baking knowledge I've gleaned from the Great British Baking Show. Okay, so that's, that's the extent of my, my baking knowledge. But notice, notice verse 6. We'll have to explain this a bit. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now, some of you are saying, uh, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> Um, well, they should have. Paul's, Paul is referring to something that the Corinthians would have been very well familiar with, at least in their culture, because the analogy is borrowed from uh, the, this, this, this everyday task that they did in their home. You know, much like, I'll try to explain it uh, again with my limited baking knowledge, um, much like we use yeast today to cause bread to rise. You forget the gluten-free people. Uh, that's not no offense or anything. You just maybe won't be able to relate to this analogy as much. Maybe. Um, I don't even know if yeast is gluten or whatever. I don't, I don't even, it's not. Okay, thank you. I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stick with the <laughs> illustration. <laughs> much like we use yeast today to cause... Uh, bread to rise, back then, so I've heard, they would use what was called leaven, which was basically a small portion of, of, of old or leftover dough from the previous batch and mix of dough that was allowed to then ferment, perhaps in some juices, which then they added to the next batch causing that batch to rise. Okay, some of you who bake are like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. From what I understand, it's sort of like what we do today, which is pretty trendy with like the sourdough starters. Is that, is that kind of? It's exactly like that. Man. Um, and so 
where, where some of the old cultures from one batch can be used to kind of start another, right? Which is just kind of a little bit gross, but it's, <laughs> it's not gross. It sounds gross to me, but... Well, as you can imagine, if that, if that leaven is left for too long in less than ideal conditions, rather than simply fermenting in a good and useful way, it can go, quick, it can go bad and end up contaminating and actually spoiling the whole loaf or the rest of the batch of dough that it was added into. And so that's the picture here. That's, that's what Paul's referring to here. And the point here, then, with that illustration is... Like just, just as it, a small amount of it was needed to, to cause the, this dough to rise, likewise, only a relatively small amount of it was needed to ruin the rest of the loaf. And if that happened, they'd have to, they'd have to scrap it and start all over again. So this picture then, as you can imagine, becomes an easy illustration in Paul's day for the spreading and corrupting influence of sin, something, something bad. In fact, if you want to take down this, it shows up in two other places in the New Testament, Matthew 16, verse 6, and Galatians 5, verse 9, and those specific places even referring to bad and false teaching. So even just a tiny amount of leaven could cause an entire loaf to rise or be ruined. What's, what powerful influence. And the same was true in Paul's mind of sin. You see, this, this is why we must exercise church discipline. Not, not just to rescue the sinner, but, but also to keep the church pure. Because, because to tolerate... Paul's point here is even the slightest corruption could jeopardize an entire church's purity and usefulness. You think about it that way? Sin, sin matters. It infects, it influences, it spreads. Listen, church discipline is God's gracious way Beloved, of purging out that evil influence, one that could very easily spread and make the whole church useless. You think, how does that happen? And how, how does tolerating and excusing someone else's sin affect my own personal pursuit of holiness, right? Well, think about it. I mean, well, let me ask you, how do you think that happens? Because I think the temptation is to say, and you can interact with me on this, the temptation is to say, well, that's their sin, right? Well, what they do isn't going to influence me. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that, actually, which we'll see here in a moment. But how does that happen, you know? Any ideas? How might tolerating a little bit of sin in the community of God's people sort of begin to affect and influence and spread in a negative way to others. Makes you question where would they draw the line? Mm-hmm. Where they would draw the line? <laughs> or where? Like where the other people would draw the line. If they're not reacting to that sin of that person. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's, uh, 
you get on a slippery slope, right? You're just, well, well, it's just a little sin, but sin is sin, right? See, the obvious one is if um, you don't care, you know, the church doesn't care about the sin in someone else, then they probably won't care about your sin, right? Which, yeah. you know, decreases the incentive to... Yeah. What? Yeah, think about those. I mean, we, look, we've all been, well, maybe not all of us, but can you think of the situation of those accountability groups or those people, you know, that, that, that you guys get together, right? I've been a part of these before in the Christian life. And all we do is commiserate about, but we never call each other out. And nobody ever holds each other, the other people accountable. You just kind of wallow together in your sin. And then you never, you never do anything about it, actually. <laughs> you know what? Because I, my sin is, in some ways, it makes me feel, I mean, their sin, if I don't touch their sin, they won't touch my sin, right? It's like that. It's, it's kind of this mutual, it's unspoken agreement, right? Um, sin, misery, love's company. Uh, yeah, and let me just say, this, this isn't the only place where Scripture warns against the evil influence of just letting sin fester among the body of Christ or, or even the evil influence of others. I'll give you a few passages. You know, Psalm 1, you just think, how blessed is the man Think about how it begins. Who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, right? There's this separation from uh, sinful people even and places. Proverbs 1.10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And all throughout the wisdom literature, you have warnings of what kinds of friends you keep. In our very own letter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, we have that famous statement, bad company corrupts good morals. You know, I think of Galatians 6, verse 1, um, also a church discipline context where Paul will say there, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. But then he warns us, listen, each one looking to your, yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Why would Paul say that? Because getting around sin, even getting around sin to help others in their sin, can, can pose to a temptation, can it? And so this is the principle being taught here, that a little toleration of some sin can lead to a large toleration of a lot of sin. And Paul says so, so don't tolerate any sin in your midst. Deal with it. So notice what Paul's command is here in verses 7 and 8. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this probably needs the most explaining. Um, what's going on here? Paul, Paul now amplifies in these two verses, 
He amplifies this proverbial illustration of baking by building onto it with two references to the Old Testament festivals that were closely linked together. And that is this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover celebration. Anybody know what those two observances were meant to celebrate in ancient Israel? They go together, by the way. Probably one's more familiar than the other. What what were the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover intended to celebrate and memorialize for the Jews? Anybody? The easiest one is Passover. What was that? What? When did that happen? In Egypt. Egypt? Yes. What? What happened in Egypt? (laughs) You remember? Moses said, "Let my people go." You remember that? (laughs) Yeah. When God delivered His people from Egypt, right? Both of these celebrations are intended to remind God's people about how he delivered them from bondage and slavery out of the land of Egypt. You can read about this. Sounds like you need to (laughs) in Exodus chapter 12. Okay, so that's your homework. And let me just briefly summarize the background for you. You remember the last plague that caused Pharaoh to let God's people go was the death of every firstborn in the land. And in order to avoid losing their firstborn, remember what was Israel told to do? Yeah, kill a lamb, uh, unblemished, and then smear the blood on the, on the doorposts, right? So that the destroyer or the angel of death would pass over, hence the name, of the, and not enter in to kill their firstborn, right? And so that was, became a landmark instance for, for Israel to remember God's deliverance out of bondage. And every year then, Israel was to celebrate the Passover. But, listen, probably less known or familiar to you. If you read Exodus 12, right alongside that Passover celebration, or we could even say part of that Passover celebration, along with sacrificing a lamb for Passover, a critical part of their memorial act was to observe um, a seven-day period in which they were to purge their homes of any and all old leaven and to eat only unleavened bread during that period of time, which, is, which then became called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you ask, why? What's significant about that? Well, to symbolize two things. Like you guys need to know your Old Testament, okay? Because the New Testament stands on this background. Why were they told to do that? Well, it symbolized two things. How quickly they had to leave Egypt, do you remember? But more importantly, it symbolized this, that as they fled Egypt, God was saying to them, look, no old leaven represented the fact that they were not even to bring with them any vestige or semblance of their old life from Egypt with them. Not even a little bit of that leaven to... Not even your, not even your treasured sourdough starter. <laughs> 
How convenient. It's like, now i got to start all over? Yes. Why? Listen, this is so profound. One writer says, at the heart of this festival was the picture on then of separation and redemption of God's people from Egypt. The people were no longer contaminated by the gods of Egypt, but were holy to the Lord. Like Their celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to signify then a clean and definitive break with their old life of bondage in Egypt. The cleaning out of all that old leaven pictured for Israel a fresh start, a new life as God's possession and people. Isn't that sweet? What an interesting picture. And so then think about it. Apply it then. He didn't even want them to bake their bread with old leaven that was prepared back in Egypt. God wanted no remnant of their old life in Egypt to come with them and corrupt them. They were to be an entirely new, fresh loaf. And here, you're beginning to see why this is such an appropriate analogy that Paul uses Paul pulls that picture forward and he applies it to the Corinthians as Christians who have been redeemed, ransomed, made new by the blood of Christ. Look, just as Israel had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, so we too have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. And here Paul says, did you notice? Christ is your Passover. And he's been sacrificed already. He's already been slain, meaning your redemption has already been accomplished, which is why he writes here, just as you are in fact unleavened. Listen, why should, you, why should we keep the church pure, practice church discipline? Because Christ died to make the church pure. That's why. So what what should we do then? Should we go back to the old life? A little bit of leaven from how convenient. Paul says, no. You're new in Christ. He died for that. You belong to Him now. Don't bring any vestige of your old life with you. Purge it. Just as the Jews were called to remember their deliverance out from Egypt by celebrating these two feasts, Paul says we, we should celebrate then, notice, by making a clean break with all that is from our old life of sin, which is why he says clean out the old leaven, get rid of that leaven of malice and wickedness, and celebrate or remember your redemption by living a life of sincerity and truth. You see what he's doing here? We must practice church discipline then because God wants his people to be pure. He purchased for himself by the very blood of Christ, the Paschal Lamb, a pure people, a people holy for his own possession. Listen, Christian, indeed, if you are in Christ, you already are pure, you've been washed clean. And so Paul is calling you to act like it. Become what you already are in the gospel. Act like a holy people because that is what God saved you to be. 
In short, we must deal severely with sin because tolerance of sin, listen, is incompatible with the gospel. It's incompatible with Christ's sacrifice, allowing any vestige of your old life to creep back in and contaminate the church is not compatible with what he did. Christ died, listen, not just to set you free, but also to make you new, an entirely new person, an entirely new creation. Christ died not just to forgive you, but also to cleanse you. So we say with Paul in Romans 6, 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Christian, this is... This is why church discipline is so significant. Because it is a call to God's people to be who He has already made them to be. The gospel, listen, demands church discipline. We practice church discipline not only to rescue the sinner, but to keep the church pure as she should be. Um, so we got one more, one more question to answer, and this one will go quicker. We'll just, we won't drag this on another week. So notice, that is why. That is why we do church discipline. But last, Paul has to clarify some misunderstanding that the Corinthians had. And we'll just put it this way in this fourth question. Who do we do church discipline with? Um, Now, we find the answer in this last paragraph, verses 9 through 13. Notice verses 9 and 10. Paul's answer here is first negative, clarifying something that the Corinthians potentially misunderstood in their previous letter he wrote to them. Here's who we don't do church discipline for, okay? Notice, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. See, what is Paul's point here? We'll put it simply, we don't do church discipline with unbelievers. Okay, We, as Christians, don't go around policing sin in unbelievers out there in the world who don't identify themselves with the body of Christ. We have no responsibility there. That's not our job. We don't discipline. We don't seek to discipline those outside because they're not in. And if discipline means putting them out, then we can't put someone out who's already out, right? That's the whole point here. So it's not to be practiced on those who are outside the church. But notice next, then he clarifies in verse 11, we do practice church discipline for those who profess Christ and attach themselves to the church, but live habitually in sin. Notice what he says in verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now notice here Paul's clarification. Paul describes this person as 
not a true brother in Christ, but he calls him a so-called brother. Isn't that interesting language? We could say that the word here is pretty much it means a brother in name only because his life doesn't match his profession because notice, even grammatically, the list here, he's characterized by the following sins. By the way, these are nouns emphasizing not just that this person has once in a while committed immorality or here and there in a moment of weakness been covetous at one time, or, but rather he is habitually known as an immoral person, a covetous person, an idolatrous person, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, It is how this person is identified. These sins are his habit and his practice and his identity. That's the the nature of the language here. And so that's who we church discipline, right? It's those so-called professing Christians who live habitually in these sins. It's with such people we're to put under church discipline. Whereas we might at times, think about this, at times associate with pagans who don't know God. I mean, think about it. Even our Lord Jesus, right, ate with sinners, associated with them, tax collectors. Here, we're instructed not to give this willfully sinning brother the privilege of Christian fellowship and community. We're not even to eat with him. You know, I mentioned last time, I think at the end, in sort of the Q&A time, that some have considered this to refer to the Lord's table. I actually think after studying it, it's, it's, I, I think it's, a, it's more than that here. Because Paul's already instructed the Corinthians to exclude this person from their gatherings and corporate worship, which no doubt included that, the Lord's table. And now here he adds to this, He uses an intensifying word to not even eat with such a one, implying that this addition is one step more extreme and serious. So I take this as prohibiting close, intimate, brotherly fellowship with this man, which sharing a meal in those days would have have been that. So finally notice then how Paul ends this chapter. By summarizing in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You see, church discipline, guys, is actually a command to God's people. It's a corporate one, and it's given to all of us. You know, it is God's role to judge those outside the the church to deal with sin in unbelievers. But you know what we find out here? It is actually our delegated responsibility as God's people to make sure that those who sin inside the church are dealt with properly, to make sure that those who profess to know Christ who identify with the church 
and yet continue in their sin, it's you and I, our responsibility to make sure that they feel the necessary and loving consequences of their hypocrisy and to hold them to their profession. So contrary to what many in the church have said, we are, we are to judge one another. <laughs> um, now, of course, we, we, have to, we have to be very careful now about how we go about doing this, right? And when, and, and this is why I want to I take one more week um, next time outside of 1 Corinthians to talk about what the due process of that discipline looks like from Matthew 18 so you guys aren't just running around willy-nilly disciplining each other, okay? <laughs> so that's where we're going. Uh, that's what we'll cover next time, okay? Well, that's chapter 5. Any questions, guys? Clear as mud. I think that the last point you made uh, is so important that you know this is this is not you know, we're we're also not to go around. It's really not our place to go around outside the church. You know, exercising this. Yeah. You know, it's yeah we we can look at, at as we grow in our sanctification we see sin clearly. Yeah. With those outside the church, but that's not our responsibility. Yeah, that's God's responsibility. He makes it clear in verse thirteen that that is God's responsibility. Yep. And so I, I think that's important because it's easy to get caught up in that. Yeah. Right? We're in this world every day. Yeah. And, you know, this is our responsibility right here. Yeah, we'll put it this way: church discipline is an in-house family function. Okay, so kind of like my kids. I don't go around spanking everybody's kids, okay? Um, I, you know, it's like uh, that, that we do for our own. <laughs> it's kind of it's the same principle, right? And I think we've got to be careful of, careful of that. And it's not to say, listen, that we don't preach to the culture, right? And we don't hold forth truth to the culture and seek to influence an ungodly culture and shine as lights, Philippians chapter 2, in a crooked and perverse generation. We should. We are to be, as I've heard said before, the conscience to the culture. That is what the church does. But we don't discipline. That's a function and command given to those within God's people. That's a good analogy because I wanted to say that last week. I don't know why I didn't get a chance to say that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the parenting and the children yeah. and the disciplining at home you guys don't understand that. You will one day, uh, and you'll, you'll you'll think back to this this message. You'll say, "Oh, this is why we church discipline." <laughs> you know, is, look at these little sinners. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that's yes. exactly what will happen. You, you will. The Gerardos will see that pretty soon. Yeah, Ger- Gerardos. <laughs> no R. No R. Ben. <laughs> yeah. At least I didn't roll the R. Yeah. Hayden, did you have something? After somebody has, you know, maybe they've gone through the whole process of being disciplined and being sent out, what it's going to, what it looks like, given that person repents of their sins to come back into, yeah, to be restored, sure. Uh, We we can we can. I'll try to 
um, not, I'll try to spend a little bit of time uh, even, to, even talking about that practically even for our church, um, but from Matthew 18. There is some language that indicates, uh, that speaks of what would happen, would a person repent, which it stops the discipline process uh, immediately. But um, so we, we will talk a little bit about that, but it doesn't address it explicitly. So, um, did you have a specific question about it, or just wondering? Yeah, it was more just like, like, like you said, like if it were to, if they were to like repent, like in the middle of the process, of course that would kind of stop it. Sure. But like say, like the whole process goes through, and it could be months, years until they repent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually. It, uh, you know what? You know what the biblically in order of Matthew eighteen. What is the passage that comes right after church discipline? Anybody know? It's forgiveness. No. <laughs> no, because Matthew eighteen, the discipline comes in the middle of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is that parable of forgiveness, where the disciples say, "How often should I forgive?" And Jesus says 70 times 7, highlighting and implying that were somebody to truly repent, even after the discipline process is carried through, that once that is proven, you, you forgive. You warmly receive the brother. You rejoice. You've won him back. And so, so if, if we never get to it, here's my answer to you. Study that sec- that next section in on forgiveness, and then uh, in Second Corinthians, um, I'd have to look up the address. But um, you know, of course, in chapter seven in Second Corinthians, you have marks of genuine repentance, and it was that person that actually um, the Corinthians did eventually exercise discipline, um, but they did it to such an extreme. <laughs> that Paul has to write to them in that letter, okay, that's enough. (laughs) Take it easy now. Receive your brother, he's repented. So there is a passage in there that speaks to that as well. I'd have to look up the address, though, um, for that. So I can send that to you. I don't know if that helps. Any other questions on that, on this? All right, let me pray. Father, we're grateful just for all the subjects that your word addresses. We know that whatever comes up in Scripture is, is something that we need. And so we, we, we confess that is true even of this difficult doctrine, this practice of church discipline. So um, teach us, continue to show us how this might apply for our own hearts and lives. Um, in the body of Christ. And and we thank you for it, even as a grace uh, to us. Lord, may we never find ourselves in this position of having to receive it. And yet if we do, we may we recognize it as being from your hand and intended for our good to restore us back to fellowship with you. And uh, give us courage, Lord, to do this for others. Um, but God, this even makes us think of how severely, 
how seriously you take sin. And so may we be hardest on our own sin first. And uh, we thank you for the grace of Christ, that he is indeed our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed already, that we are unleavened. Lord, what a gift. Uh, Help us now. Strengthen us to live like it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.